0: Isaiah 7. Now it came about in the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, that Rezin the king of Aram, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, king of Israel, went up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not conquer it. When it was reported to the house of David, saying, The Arameans have camped in Ephraim, his heart and the hearts of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake with the wind. Then the Lord said to Isaiah, "Go out now to meet Ahaz, you and your son Shear-Jashub, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the Fuller's Field, and say to him, 'Take care and be calm, have no fear and do not be faint-hearted because of these two stubs of smouldering firebrands on account of the fierce anger of Rezin and Aram and the son of Remaliah, because Aram with Ephraim and the son of Remaliah has planned evil against you, saying.'" Let us go up against Judah and terrorize it and make for ourselves a breach in its walls and set up the son of Tobiel as king in the midst of it. Thus says the Lord God, it shall not stand nor shall it come to pass for the head of Aram is Damascus and the head of Damascus is resin. Now within another 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered so that it is no longer a people and the head of Ephraim is Samaria and the head of Samaria is the son of Remaliah If you will not believe, you surely shall not last. Then the Lord spoke again to Ahaz, saying, Ask a sign for yourself from the Lord your God. Make it deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord. Then he said, Listen now, O house of David. Is it too slight a thing for you to try the patience of men that you will try the patience of my God as well? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. He will eat curds and honey at the time he knows enough to refuse evil and choose good. For before the boy will know enough to refuse evil and choose good, the land whose two kings you dread will be forsaken. The Lord will bring on you, on your people, and on your father's house such days as have never come since the day that Ephraim separated from Judah, the king of Assyria. In that day, the Lord will whistle for the fly that is in the remotest part of the rivers of Egypt and for the bee that is in the land of Assyria. They will all come and settle on the steep ravines, on the ledges of the cliffs, on all the thorn bushes, and on all the watering places. In that day, the Lord will shave with a razor, hired from regions beyond the Euphrates, that is, with the king of Assyria, the head and the hair of the legs, and it will also remove the beard." Now in that day a man may keep alive a heifer and a pair of sheep, and because of the abundance of the milk produced, he will eat curds, for everyone that is left within the land will eat curds and honey. And it will come about in that day that every place where there used to be a thousand vines valued at a thousand shekels of silver will become briars and thorns. People will come there with bows and arrows, because all the land will be briars and thorns. As for all the hills which used to be cultivated with the hoe, you will not go there for fear of briars and thorns, but they will become a place for pasturing oxen and for sheep to trample.
1: So much of it we miss so many times. I pray that as we look at your word today, we would see in a little bit deeper way your grand story, your magnificent power, and the wonderful work that you've done in sending Jesus Emmanuel. So many times, Lord. We our senses become dull because we hear uh, parts of your word so frequently, and we forget just how great of a God you are, and what wonderful things you have done, and what wonderful things you are doing. Would you, by the power of your Spirit, soften our hearts today to your word? May it penetrate. The deepest parts of our soul may it convict us where it needs to convict us may it encourage us where it needs to encourage us may we have cause to repent where we need to repent and to give up territory in our lives that we're grasping onto for ourselves and to trust you God may there be people who don't know you today, who who are dead in their sin, may their souls be quickened by the power of your word, not by the power of great speech or presentation, but by the power of your word, because it's the only power that can save, Lord. And so during the next few moments, help us to focus on you and to worship you as we look at your word in faith. And be obedient to you and what you tell us to do in the name of Jesus. amen. seated. Well, let me go ahead and get this off the table. Some of you are saying, who would have gotten their daughter to read that passage? <laughs> that guy's going to have to buy an extra wedding gift yeah I didn't that's not on me that's on Matthew. So, he chose her to read that text. Uh, I wanted to read this text and no, no one in this room uh, is a sovereign king, but we do tend to in our own lives we tend to build our little kingdoms in our lives and, and though we may not share much in common with this king Ahaz, we do have the tendency to protect our kingdoms and to hold on to them to make our survival the things that, that is of utmost importance because that's the world that we live in that's what the world tells us to do but really is that the way we should live and as we look toward the Advent season as I said before I really, I chose this text today for a few reasons one of the reasons I picked Isaiah chapter 7 is that it's a great reminder that God is working out his story and it's a big story our lives and our time here are only a small part of it, but, but they are a part of it by the grace of God. And so when we really delve into these passages like this, it, it magnifies, hopefully, who God is and what he is doing, and it magnifies our gratitude for his making us a part of this story. Secondly, uh, we're so thankful for this place, but we're also thankful that this is our last Sunday in this place, and we're going to own a building. But this text reminds us that, that God owns it all and that we are only good stewards when we, meaning both we as a body and we individually, when we live out the details of our lives in faith, regardless of the cost, when we view everything that he has given us as something for us to steward, when we realize that ultimately he is in control of it all. And then thirdly, when she read that chapter, there was probably one verse that jumped out at you. We know some of those key messianic prophetic texts in the Old Testament. Uh, We know in Micah, he tells the city that Jesus is going to be born. We know of many other messianic prophecies without really knowing the, the context in which they were given that kind of goes back to my first reason context is big because not only does it help us to understand God more it reminds us of the great work that he's doing prophecies are not spoken in a vacuum they're spoken in a context and when we understand that then we, un- we understand more what God is saying into our own life a text can never mean now what it didn't mean then and if we're not Uh, dedicated to understanding what it meant then, then we'll never grasp fully what it means to us now. So you see, the passage in a sentence today is, while God is sovereignly working out his plan of salvation for his own glory, we're responsible for our faithfulness to him. So this one is uh, a little bit different. You may have, as she was reading the, the text, you may have said, Oh man, there's a lot of sons of and people and countries and things I never knew. And I think it would be do good if you would just stay with me for just a moment. I want to, without dumbing it down too much, try to simplify what, uh, what Isaiah is saying here and what is going on. So just a quick trip through history. You remember God brought his people out of Egypt. They were in the wilderness for 40 years. They entered the promised land. And that was the kingdom of Israel. And... The people said, we want a king like these other countries around us have, like these other nations have. And God relented and gave them a king. Now I thought to myself, why would he do that? Why would he relent? I mean, he's the king. He is the king, right? Why would he do that? Well, you see today, verse 14, God is going to send the Messiah through the king of this nation. He's going to show that no king because none of them were truly good no king is the real king and so he, he sends Jesus through the, through the line of the kings so the nation of Israel is there but they have a king and you know what happens when sin gets involved uh, there starts being separation the kingdom divides into two kingdoms the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom the southern kingdom is Judah and the northern kingdom is Israel and Ahaz is the king here of the southern kingdom. He is in the line of David. And what has happened in the meantime is that not only do you have this kingdom and that kingdom, the northern and southern kingdom, there are other kingdoms in the world and they are rising to power. There's a kingdom in Syria, but the, the kind of the big dog kingdom at this time is, is Assyria. That's the one everyone is concerned with. So the king of the northern kingdom makes a pact with Syria and his reason for doing that is because he's, he is worried about Assyria and when I say the northern kingdom uh, I'm going to call it Ephraim that, that's another name for that uh, they, they make a pact in order to protect themselves from Assyria but, but they know they need more resources so what they decide to do is to go to King Ahaz and say you join our pact and we will all protect ourselves from Assyria but Ahaz says, no, he's not going to do that. And so those two kingdoms attack. And when we pick up this packet, uh, passage, uh, we find out that uh, they're going to attack again. It says, when the house of David, that is Ahaz's kingdom, was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim. They formed a pact. They're coming again. The heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. They're coming after you, is what they're saying. So Ahaz and his people, they have a fear. And that's when the, God tells Isaiah, go to meet Ahaz. And he says, you and Shirjashub. Now, names mean a lot in this culture. Shirdeshub means uh, a remnant will return. That's what it means. And so God has a, Isaiah the, God is in all of the details he has Isaiah to carry his son in order to fortify his message to, to, to say this is what I'm saying to you because I'm about to give you this prophecy and this is part of the prophecy and he tells him to go at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway in the washers field now this is not a pool like you and I think of a pool where we uh, rest and relax this was uh, an aqueduct system so it makes sense that Ahaz is there because he's about to be attacked. He thinks his city might be, be seized. Uh, he's got to take care of his water system so that they can do whatever they need to uh, during that time of attack. So um, he he goes up there and he he meets Ahaz. And he says to him, Be careful, be quiet, do not fear, do not let your heart be faint. Because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands at the fierce anger of resident Syria. And listen to this. And the son of Remelah. Now, who is Sim- Remelah? He was the father of the person who is the king of, in the northern kingdom now. And this is what Jesus, excuse me, this is what God does. He keeps referring to this king as the son, the son of so-and-so. It reminded me as I read this, I remember when Laura and I were dating, uh, I would go somewhere with her parents every once in a while, and her dad would introduce us all, and he would say, this is my daughter, Laura, and this is my daughter, Regina, and this is, um, what's his name? What's his name, you know? I don't know if he actually forgot my name or if he was just, let me know who was in charge, right? It was a way of dismissing. And that's what God is doing through Isaiah here. He's saying, These people are nothing to me. They're they're stumps. They're, They're trees that will be cut down soon. Don't worry about them. Don't worry about them that they're saying, let us go up against Judah and terrify it and let us conquer it for ourselves and set up the son of Tabil as king in the midst of it thus says the Lord God. So their plan was to take over the southern kingdom, put their own king in power who was a puppet king and they could do what, he would do whatever they told him to so that they could defend themselves against Assyria. But in the meantime, Ahaz has made his own plan and it's a plan where he has not consulted God, he's used his own reason. His plan of action is to align himself with Assyria. And so... Um, But but Isaiah is telling him It shall not stand and it shall not come to pass For the head of Syria is Damascus And the head of Damascus is Rezin. Within 65 years Ephraim that is the northern kingdom Will be broken to pieces So that it will no longer be a people even And the head of Ephraim is Samaria The head of Samaria is the son of Rimelah There he is again calling him just the son Not even going to name him If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. So the first truth that goes to the first part of verse 9 is that God reigns over all kingdoms and none are eternal except him. God knows your enemy better than you do. You think about that, the verse, especially the verse part of 9, and the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Abraham. He knows that these kingdoms are going to be wiped out by Assyria. He knows what is going to happen to, to your enemies now, today. And we should take comfort in that, that God reigns over all kingdoms, and none are eternal except his. And secondly, the other sub-point I have there is that, that God never promises success conditionally, but rather his constant presence with those who place their faith in him. If you look closely at this passage, he never uh, promises Ahaz world power. He never says, trust me, and you will have what your heart is striving for. You will be the, the, the power over all of the world because that's what Ahaz wants. That's what the, all of these kings want. They want to be the power, and God never promises this, but what he does promise is that His his presence will remain no matter what Ahaz and his people have to walk through if he puts his faith in him. Second truth you see there is that that anything other than wholehearted reliance on the Lord is not really an alliance at all. God doesn't choose sides. God reigns. Uh, He doesn't come to weigh into the situation in our lives. It's not the way his lordship works. He comes to reign, and it is for our good and for his glory. It reminds me of the passage, God doesn't choose sides, he reigns. Joshua chapter five, verses 13 through 15. Um, this is just after the people had entered the promised land. And they crossed the Jordan River, and here Joshua stands, and he's looking at the city of Jericho, the first city that God is told them they're going to conquer and no doubt he's saying there is no way no way I can conquer this city I don't see how it's going to happen so if we look in Joshua chapter 5 verse 13 he says when Joshua was by Jericho he lifted up his eyes and he looked and behold a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand and Joshua went to him and said to him are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, no. It's a strange answer. You ask this or that question and, and the response is no. But I am the commander of the army of the Lord, and now I have come. And Joshua fell to his face, fell on his face to the earth and worshiped and said to him, what does my Lord say to his servant?" And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, "Take off your sandals, for your feet, from your feet, for the place where you're standing is holy." And Joshua did so. So, the common thought here is that this is a preeminent appearing of Jesus Christ, and the textual support there is that Joshua worships this commander of the Lord's army and the commander does not forbid him to. We see places in scripture where people bow down to worship angels and, and the angels forbid them to do that because they say, I, I, I'm not God. I'm not worthy of worship. There's no forbidding here. But the point is that God does not come into your life to weigh into your battle. God comes into your life to take over and that is for your good. And... and that, that requires a wholehearted reliance on God. The second subtruth that we would say, and, and this is a big one, is that, that false piety is a poor disguise for lack of faith. I want you to see something with me here. Um, after, after Isaiah says, If you're not firm in your faith, you will not be firm at all, he, again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. He speaks through Isaiah. He says, Ask a sign of your Lord God, ask anything you want. Let it be as deep as Sheol or high as heaven. Ask for a sign, he says, anything. But this reveals his heart. Ahaz said, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. And Isaiah goes on to say, well, you didn't ask for a sign, but I'm about to give you one anyway. But this is a false piety. Ahaz is saying, no I'm not going to test God but what he's really saying is no I've made up my mind and I'm not willing to give control to God I'm not willing to ask for a sign so that I will be forced to either deny the sign or uh, step out on faith and do something that's radical to give up this territory that I want so badly and that all of the circumstances, all of the, the, everything that I've lived in in my whole life tells me that I should do. So his world, just like ours, is telling us, telling him that he should follow a different path and a different wisdom than what God is saying. And then the third truth is, is this that Jesus Christ Emmanuel was God's plan from eternity. Jesus Christ, Emmanuel, was God's plan from eternity. He gives them this, this prophecy that, that um, we're so fam- familiar with. He said, "Then, hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary man, men that you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a son. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. And then he goes on to give uh, more details about uh, what that will look like. So what Isaiah is say, saying here is that, that Jesus was known before the foundation of the world. He, he's pointing to that truth that we see in Scripture. We ju- we've just spent some time in First Peter. This is quite different than First Peter. But um, in First Peter chapter 1, verses 17 through 21, the beginning of the letter... This is what Peter says. If you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Listen to verse 20. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world but was made manifest in the last times for your sake, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Jesus was known before the foundation of the world. And then because Jesus comes on the scene, he, he is the dividing point. He brings either judgment or deliverance. Jesus is either, either a cornerstone Or he's a stumbling block. We see that in Isaiah. We see it in several places. Isaiah 8, verse 14, the next chapter. He will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. So he says he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense, a stumbling rock. How can he be both? He is both. You're either going to stand on faith... In this Jesus, or you're going to stumble over him. There is no, well, I'm going to figure out another way of that. Because we will see. Ahaz did that and it, it meant his demise. Paul also writes this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 23. He makes a reference to this. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews, a folly to the Gentiles. So now, not only is Jesus a stumbling block within the Jewish nation, he's a stumbling block within the Jewish nation and everywhere outside of the Jewish nation. What you're going to do with Jesus is going to, to decide everything. And then again, back to 1 Peter verse 2.8. Uh, chapter 2, verse 8. He says, "And a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word, as they were destined to. So he's a stumbling block. So this this prophecy that that the um, that this Emmanuel, this one would come, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel." This is a prophecy that's been attacked through time, but especially over the past couple of hundred years. Does this actually mean uh, a woman who has not been with a man will bear a son, a virgin as we know her? Uh, There are some who would say that, and they base that argument really primarily on the Hebrew language. Uh, These couple of words, the words betula and the words... Um, that mean young maiden, the word Alma. The liberal scholars would say that Alma, which is the word here, it means simply a young maiden. And they say that if Isaiah wanted to say a virgin, he would have used this other word, betula. Uh, It's it's a way to find uh, a way to take away the supernaturalness of God in the conception of Jesus. But, but I would give you three arguments against that. This is kind of the, uh, the apologetics part of the sermon, I guess you would say. Uh, the first is the Septuagint. The Septuagint uh, was the first translation from Hebrew to Greek. It was written uh, around uh, during the first century. And it was early. It was accurate. Uh, Seventy or so more Jewish scholars uh, in the first century did this. And the Septuagint uses the Greek word virgin, unmistakably. They're the ones who would be, at that time, the the closest thing that would be uh, intimately familiar with the Hebrew language. A second argument would be this. uh, Use scripture to confirm scripture. So we turn to Genesis chapter 24. I want you to turn with me there just for a moment. Genesis chapter 24. This is when Abraham has sent his servant to to find a wife. To find a wife for Isaac. And so the servant comes to the point where he's coming to the well. If you begin in verse 12, he says, and he said, he's praying to God. He says, "O Lord, God of my master Abraham, Please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. Behold, I'm standing by the spring of water and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Let the young woman, that word is the Hebrew word betula, to whom I shall say, please let down your jar that I may drink. And who shall say, drink, and I will water your camels. Let her be the one whom... You have appointed for your servant Isaac. He's saying, send the woman to me right now. Please, Lord, I'm depending on you to do this, to accomplish the task I've been given. By this I shall know that you have shown steadfast love to my master. Verse 15, before he had finished speaking, behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, came out with her water jar on her shoulder. Listen to verse 16. The young woman... Again, the word betula, a a different word than what we see in Isaiah, in the passage in Isaiah, was very attractive in appearance. And then this other description, a maiden whom no man had known. So if the word betula is the best word for virgin, then it's it's very strange that there would be this other description at the end that that says a, a maiden whom no man had known. And then jump over to verse 43, we're going to use in the same chapter. Um, He's recounting the story, and he says, I came today to the spring and said, O Lord, God of my master Abraham, if now you are prospering the way that I go, behold, I am standing by the spring of water. Let the virgin who comes out draw water to whom I shall say, and that word is Alma. Please give me water from your jar to drink. No further description. So that textual evidence would seem to say that the word Alma means a virgin. A virgin is going to conceive. Then there's one other one, and this is probably the strongest evidence. Uh, It's where Matthew points back to this Luke passage. Turn to Matthew chapter one, verses 18 through 23, and he's talking about, this is just an accounting of the birth of Jesus. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins all this took place to fulfill what the Lord has spoken by the prophet behold the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel which means God with us it's probably the strongest evidence that this is a virginal birth Uh, because what we have are two passages here uh, written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And so if we're going to trust that, then we've got to say this is a virginal birth. One more thing on this, that that, that I I didn't put this in your note, but Isaiah chapter 8, some will say that Isaiah's second son, that that this, this birth of this person will be Isaiah's second son. You know his second son. You know how we name people after biblical names you, I mean, we get we get some of that around here and, and i'm looking for this one meher shalal hashbaz so if any of you ladies are, are expecting and just haven't let us know that go ahead and start praying about that one meher shalal hashbaz you remember i told you about his first son that his his name had a meaning and the meaning had significance. The names in this culture mean so much because of their meaning. Mehershelal Hashbab has nothing to do with Emmanuel. It has nothing to do with God with us. It actually means spoil quickly or plunder. Uh, and we find that in Isaiah chapter 8. So this is a prophecy about the coming of, of Jesus as the Messiah the supernatural birth of Jesus Christ. Now, let me me connect that a little more with Christ. Not Not long after Ahaz's time, there was no more kingdom of David. The people were deported, and they were exiled, and even when the exiled children of Judah came back, things were never the same. They were never the same. There was never a ruling king in the southern kingdom. Uh, And the northern kingdom basically disintegrated. There were other dynasties that came along after Assyria. There's always another kingdom. And they always have a terminality to them. Always an end. There was Babylon. And then there was the Greek dynasty. And then the Roman dynasty that was in power when Jesus was born. And the remnant... The remnant, you remember Isaiah's first son, the remnant waited and watched for centuries for the prophecy to be fulfilled. And then this angel comes to Joseph and the birth of Jesus didn't just symbolize God with us. The birth of Jesus is God with us, God in the flesh. So what do we do with it? Let's make some application this morning just in the next few moments that we have. The first thing that I would say that this applies to our lives is that that we should beware of the impulse to survive. There is, uh, if I told you today to just start taking notice of ways to prolong and better and invest money to make your life last longer, be stronger, Better looking, all of those things. It's a multi-billion-dollar industry in our culture, right? And it's it's built on this premise. Priority one is to survive, and to survive the best that you can to put yourself forward. And we all have that impulse in us. We see uh, places in Scripture where people people went against that. Uh, that fleshly uh, God of this age impulse to to survive and to put yourself forward, to come up with your own reasoning. We see David. We see David uh, standing before Goliath, not promised victory, not concerned even about survival, but David concerned about obeying God and fighting for him. Now David did that perfectly all through his life, but in that moment he did when he stood before Goliath. Survival was not his driving force. We see Daniel praying and commanded not to pray again or he's going to be thrown into the lion's den and Daniel continues to pray because he's more concerned about showing his faith and standing on the rock of his sure faith in God, not a blind faith, but a sure faith, than he is about survival. And I think in our own life, we have opportunities in our own kingdom to show that we're more concerned about walking in faith than we are about surviving. It's very unlikely that that anyone in this room, I'm not gonna say it wouldn't happen, but it's very unlikely that anyone will ever be martyred for your faith. That's not something that's going to happen. But you could lose a friendship. You could even lose a job. You could, uh, it could cost you dearly in, in ways that would cause you pain. But in, in standing for God, in, in walking in faith, in, in proclaiming the truths of Scripture in people's lives, in, in letting people know unequivocally that you are never standing on your own merit, but you're wholly standing on the merit of Christ, then you walk in faith and you push back that impulse to survive. Jesus, the ultimate example of one who, who um, the, the ultimate example of one who did not follow an impulse to survive. When he had every reason to, and more reason than any of us did, because he had never done anything wrong. He was being falsely accused of crimes, and he was about to be hung on a cross, and he could have stopped it at any time. But in doing the will of his father, he, he Kill the impulse to survive and then lastly I want to read this passage from Revelation chapter 12 I think this is beautiful verses 7 through 11 John's picture of what is going to happen in the end times this is now a war arose in heaven Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon and the dragon and his angels fought back Who accuses them day and night before our God? You see, the day that we long for is come, coming to pass here. In verse eleven, and they conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. Listen to the last part of this verse, and they loved not their lives even to death. Their love for their life was diminished by their walk in their faith with their walk of faith with God. And then the second application point I would say today is to to trust God when you can't see the big picture. Nobody can see the big picture except God. One more time, I want to turn back to 1 Peter verses 10 through 12. And I want to connect this with Isaiah. 1 Peter chapter 1 verses 10 through 12. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring What person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when He predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glory? It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news, to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Do you see the connection? Isaiah is hearing a word from the Lord. It's a pretty specific word, but it's not an all-encompassing word. And he faithfully proclaims the word because he has faith in God. And he, Matthew and I had a conversation a couple of weeks ago. We don't understand how much these Old, Old Testament prophets knew about what they were prophesying. But this, this passage in 1 Peter tells us they didn't understand it all. And yet they faithfully, faithfully proclaimed it. So, trust God when you cannot see the big picture. Do you understand that you and I, we have more reason to trust God's word than Ahaz did? We can look at this passage, we, we can say, this wicked man Ahaz, we read in 1 Kings where he was so wicked that uh, in trying to assimilate with the other nations, he sacrificed his own son to the gods that's how wicked of a man this was and yet God sees fit to at least give him this prophecy that he's not even asking for when we compare that with with what we have when we have the coming of Jesus Christ the revelation of all of his work that his death on the cross and his resurrection and his empowering of the apostles his founding of the church we've seen all of that happen we have much more reason to trust God's word than Ahaz did because God has taken on flesh for us to keep his promises. So how do we respond to this today? This is what I would say. How do we respond to this? The first thing that I would, I would encourage us today to, to do to, is to examine your own life. Examine your own life. Are there kingdoms, kingdoms, little kingdoms in your life that you're, currently holding on to that you're saying boy God do anything but don't don't send my kids into hard places don't do that are you holding them like that because you think you know better than God maybe you need to confess that today and to, to, to lay that before him Is your job a kingdom for you? Do you have relationships that you think you really, really need in such a way, and and relationships that don't honor God, that need to be changed, that that you need to just lay that at his feet and say, I'm not going to hang on to these kingdoms anymore. I'm going to give them to him because I can trust him. And then a second way to respond today is that, that... Mitchell mentioned this before when we were singing earlier and praying. There, there's really only one unforgivable sin. And that's a lack of belief. That's a lack of faith in God. And so while I, I would encourage you today that if you're in this room and and you know that the promises are true, that the warnings are true, that the warnings are dire, he gives them. I, we didn't go into the rest of this passage, but he tells Ahaz That of what is going to happen because of his disobedience, and it means destruction. And it's only a small picture of, of the ultimate destruction when we fail to put our faith in God. And so, today, if you maybe have never put your faith in God, can I just tell you, you can trust Him. No matter what sins you have committed, He can forgive them. He is greater than all of that. Here's the dangerous thing. You can be playing the part. You can be living a moral life. You can be doing religious things, but you know deep inside that you are holding on to your kingdom. And if that's the case, you're just like Ahaz. And you will lose it all, just like Ahaz did. Because this is what Isaiah told him. Trust God. Trust God because all of this stuff that you're fighting for that you're trying to grasp and hold on to it's all going to go away anyway you're going to lose it and all you're going to have is what you have in God your faith in God so trust him today I would like I would just encourage you today uh, along with you to, to put your faith in God to, to give your sins to him, to trust him to forgive you, and to have him to search your soul for the kingdoms that you're hanging on to, so let's pray Father, this is such a challenging text that we have because it's in a it's in a different place, it's in a different time and it's in a different culture than than what we're used to but I pray today that through the power of your spirit you have spoken to our hearts through your prophet Isaiah through your word I pray that we would be totally honest with you about kingdoms that we're hanging on to and I pray for the one today or the ones today who have never placed their faith in you God Make you break their heart and give them life. Let them know that they are in a place of broken people who have been saved by a wonderful Savior. Lord, I'm thinking of so much territory that needs to be given to you right now. Because we're trusting in ourselves, in our reason, in our justification, in our false piety, more than we are in you. May we realize today that when we trust ourselves more than we do you, it's utter foolishness. Because all that we're trying to hold on to will be gone one day. Help us to give our children, help us to give our jobs, help us to give our relationships, help us to give our territory of service, even here in the local church, to give it to you, God. To do with as you wish. Because you are good and you are wise. And in glorifying yourself, you desire our good and you are so merciful to do that. So break our hearts today, Lord, and help us to respond to you in a way that's, that's totally honest because you see our hearts as they are. And help us to love one another well. In the name of Jesus, amen. Grace.